episode number 17 of Minor League Baseball's The Show Before the Show podcast coming at you. Hi, everybody. I'm Tyler Mon, Jake Siner in New York City. Packed show, packed week this week. The Major League Baseball trade deadline coming up in about 10 days. The signing deadline for 2015 draft picks is already passed. We're going to talk a little bit about that. Big week, Jake. Yeah, it's going to be uh, going to be a fun one. We're going to talk about a guy who has not played a minor league game yet and then a bunch of guys who have played a whole lot of them and are hoping to stop playing in the minors. Very but, uh, soon. For some of them, yes. very soon. For some of them, yes. We'll dive right in. Strike one, this week's edition of Three Strikes here on the show before the show, which, as always, you can find on iTunes and on MILB.com, and you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast at iTunes and uh, submit us your questions. If you have any questions you would like us to cover in Three Strikes or elsewhere, podcast at MILB.com. But let's dive in. First overall pick of the 2015 MLB first-year player draft has signed. It came down to almost the last minute, but Dansby Swanson, the shortstop out of Vanderbilt, has signed. He has joined the Arizona Diamondbacks and will head directly to Class A Advanced Visalia. And Jake and I, before the show, did uh, some research. It's been a long time since there has been a bat taken, a college bat, in the top overall pick in the draft that has gone directly to high A. So this is a pretty interesting move for the Diamondbacks. Yeah, it's the, 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 what you said it was 1998. Pat Burl was the last time that a, a first round, a first overall pick, college bat, went to, to advanced A to start the season. Um, just a, even recent history for first round picks and bats. The only guy since 2011 to make that jump in that way was James Ramsey with the Cardinals in 2011. Uh, a couple other guys have been sent to, directly to Class A. Tyler, Tim Anderson with Kannapolis. Colin Moran uh, went to Greensboro with the Marlins. Stephen Piscotti, we'll talk a little bit more about later, but he went straight to the Quad Cities that same year that Ramsey did with the Cardinals. But kind of an unusual move and uh, unusual more because it seems like if anybody was going to make this jump, and this isn't a dig at Dansby Swanson because I think he's a, a pretty advanced player, but we've seen even guys like Chris Bryant and Kyle Schwarber get sent to Class A short season. Michael Conforto was a really advanced bat. He started in short season in Brooklyn. This is a pretty unusual move for the Diamondbacks. Uh, which doesn't mean it's bad. I just I think it's it's interesting. Uh, the reason the teams usually send guys to those short season teams is because those those teams, those affiliates, are sort of designed to take in those college players who have just finished that college season, have never played in a professional environment, but have you know some experience with at least playing in, in more official capacities, playing in major colleges or something. But there's a lot of time with those Class A short season teams just working on you know this is what time you come to the ballpark, this is what time we take batting practice, this is sort of the scouting notes we're going to be able to give you, this is how we want you to interpret that, this is sort of how we want to set up your professional routine, and that's something that's usually easier to do when you're working with a whole bunch of guys who are making that same transition at the same time, as opposed to Swanson's going to go to Class A Advanced Vesalia, be with a bunch of guys who have been in the minors for three, four, five, six years, you can get some guys in their, their mid-20s probably hanging around on that roster. Um, it's going to kind of is more of a challenge for Swanson, just saying we're kind of going to throw you into the deep end and um, probably speaks well to what the Diamondbacks know about him and his makeup, that they would throw him into that. But it also seems like, you know, if you think he's going to be at Visalia by the end of the year, you just still give him those couple weeks in, in short season in Hillsborough and, and, you know, let him get his feet wet there. Um, so an aggressive move and one that I, I guess signals well about what the Diamondbacks think about Swanson and his makeup and everything. But um, you know, we've talked a, a little bit about the Diamondbacks in recent weeks, and I don't know if this this same kind of head stretcher as the Tupi Toussaint trade or um, some of the things we talked about around the Peter O'Brien situation. But another interesting and unusual move for the Diamondbacks, certainly not afraid to 
do things a little differently than uh, than the rest of the baseball. There's something in the mountain time zone where teams are just trying kind of odd, quirky things on their own. The Diamondbacks, I mean, you know, like you said, with Tukey, we've seen so much uh, strangeness, I guess, come out of that that whole situation. Even in a quote that Tukey gave yesterday to Danny Wilde in a story after he threw six no-hit innings for Rome, he said, you know, the Diamondbacks are the Diamondbacks and the Braves are the Braves. And so I, this will be a very uh, fascinating test of the Diamondbacks player development process to see how Dansby Swanson starts to develop. Now, according to dbacks.com, he will begin his minor league career with a, quote, brief stint in the Arizona League. So his first real day-to-day exposure to the minor league lifestyle, as Jake's talking about, is going to come at a pretty advanced level. And that is the crux of this whole situation because if you want to get an advanced college bat to develop as a baseball player, that's a great idea. But not a whole lot of guys are able to handle that transition while doing it at such a high level because of the stuff that Jake pointed out, because of learning your daily routine, because it's not like college where you're going to play four or five days a week. Here you're going to be playing six to seven days a week every week, riding the buses, going to the ballpark at certain times every day, getting your early work in, hitting in the cage, hitting off a tees, doing all that kind of stuff. It's not just show up to the ballpark and play a game. There's a lot of other stuff in the lifestyle that goes into it. So to do that, to get acclimated to that while doing it at a very high level is also going to be an interesting task, not just to see what Dansby Swanson is able to do on the field, but off the field, how he acclimatizes to that life as well. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's, we're talking about this probably more than it even deserves to be talked about in in a way, because it's probably going to end up being a no big deal thing, but it's just one of those where it's a a little bit of a risk to just throw more at Dansby Swanson as he's making this transition, which is going to be a difficult transition at any level, just you know, going in and playing pro baseball for the first time, dealing with all of those different aspects, and also just the fact that he's going to see guys throwing 95 on a, a near daily basis now for the first time in his career. Um, so the, the thing is, is you know, if you do this, you're hopefully looking, I guess, to get him at double A to start next year, which is reasonable. We've seen that with some recent bats with uh, Chris Bryant and Kyle Schwarber and, and Conforto got there. Um, but, but those guys also, they started in short season ball, they got the kind of transition with everybody else, and and they got to uh, a few of them got to, to class A advance by the end of the year. Um, so just it's 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 an interesting thing that is, I guess is interesting to me on a maybe because we're so close to this and so close to the process. But um, just that the D backs would do that. Uh, we're gonna move on to strike two. We're gonna talk about Pirates right hander Tyler Glass now, who is quickly rounding into form and looking like a guy who maybe doesn't need to be in Double A much longer. Uh, Glass now opened the season with Double A Altoona. In early May, he suffered an ankle injury and landed on the disabled list, um, and he's come back. He just made his fourth or fifth start with Double A Altoona since the injury. He's thrown a, a couple of consecutive uh, scoreless outings. He's got 13 straight scoreless innings. He's got a 16-to-0 uh, strikeout-to-walk ratio in that time. Um, and the, the zero walks are a big thing with Glass now. He's a guy who, not that his walk numbers have been out of control throughout his minor league career, but he's a, a six foot eight fireballer who... You know, the thing holding him back has, has never been his stuff. It's always been just getting that command in, into form and into a place where, where he's going to, uh, you know, not walk too many guys, not work too many deep counts, be able to work deeper into games. And he's doing that uh, very, very consistently now. He's, he's gone deeper in, in three straight games, with considering his pitch count and everything. He's, he's only walked one guy in his last three games. Um, I talked to him after his most recent start over the weekend, and he said that the, the fastball command, he actually – Kind of thought he had things figured out uh, in April whenever he started the season and going into May. felt like he had really turned a, a corner there. Um, being comfortable with things in the past, his process on the mound had been a lot of thinking about 
mechanics and, and making sure that you know he knows you know where his left foot is landing, where his right arm is coming up, the arm angle of what he's throwing, just you know all the things that kind of go through a pitcher's head that you can focus on when you're thinking about mechanics. And he made the conscious decision this year to worry a little bit less about that and also a little bit less about in-game adjustments for the curveball doesn't feel perfectly, you know, like it's coming out of his hand perfectly. He's going to say, okay, I'll just work with the fastball or the changeup. And he has the deep enough repertoire now where he can say, I don't have this pitch. I can work these other pitches as long as they feel okay. Um, so where in the past he was making a lot of adjustments in games, now he's kind of settling in, making sure he has the fastball command, not worrying so much about which off-speed pitches is on that day, but just making sure he has one or two of those. And then just trying to be more athletic in his delivery. He said that's something where he's just trying to, to sort of have more of a feel and more of a just trusting his mechanics are going to be good or certainly he's close enough to the baseline that he set for himself uh, that he's going to be able to deliver the fastball where he wants to. And that's been working really, really well. Now, he says the ankle injury still bothers him a little bit. It's just a little stiff, no pain or anything. Um, it's one of those that's a little slow to totally disappear, but it hasn't really affected his, uh, his command, especially in the last uh, two starts. He said it's felt a lot better, and especially in his last one over the weekend. Um, but that's a really good sign for Pirates fans. Uh, not that the rotation is in dire need in the major leagues, but last now certainly could provide a boost either in the rotation or in the uh, in the bullpen. Um, certainly has the, the stuff to do that, and his fastball command continues to be as good as it's been in, in Double A. Um, you know, he he doesn't necessarily need a whole lot of time in Triple A working on the pitchability stuff. Cause his stuff is good enough. He's going to succeed in the majors just with with a catcher calling his pitches for him in, in a lot of ways. Um, so a really good sign there. You know what is crazy is the Pirates have been so good for the last few seasons at the major league level, and starting pitching has been a big key to that, but they've done it without yet getting major contributions from Jamison Tyone. Tyler Glass now has been in the system for a while. Pirates fans, it probably feels like they've been waiting for him for a long time. But Garrett Cole has been the guy to graduate and really f- head that, that line of – paraded pitchers that are coming up through the ranks in the system. Glass now, I think the, the most impressive thing to me – about Tyler Glass now is you think at every level he's going to be challenged more than he is. He's only 21, so he's dominating the Eastern League at a very young age for that level. But he did the same exact thing last year in Bradenton. Last year, 20 years old, a 12-5 and record, a 1.74 ERA, and 23 starts for Class A advanced Bradenton. This year, at the AA level, at 21, a 4-2 and record, a 2.12 season-long ERA. In his career, he's got an ERA of under 2. It's 1.99. Uh, I think you hit something very aptly, Jake, that people worry about a lot with guys like this his frame his build his size he's listed at 68225 sometimes you worry about how is that going to affect a guy's ability to repeat his delivery how's it going to affect his command i mean obviously with a power pitcher that's even more of a worry for a bigger guy but throughout this entire season at both levels he made two appearances for uh west virginia in uh the new york pen league uh in a rehab appearance when coming back from the injury between the two levels this year he's walked 15 batters in his 12 total appearances so it's not even like a batter per inning ratio that you talk about with him it's like a batter per outing ratio that you talk about with him overall season long 66 k's and 56 in the third innings and just 15 walks so that's a huge encouraging sign and yeah I mean like you said when you started talking maybe he's ready for something higher than the double a level and at 21 years old that's that's pretty huge for Pirates fans yeah I don't know if I'm talking to to Pirates people before the season they I mean it's been pretty pretty evident that they've had a very direct plan of of promoting glass now through his career he's been on um, pretty strict innings limits he's gone just a a level per year he was in West Virginia in 2013 Bradenton last year um, they said uh, this was sort of the year he had now checked all the boxes that they kind of look for in their development as far as uh, increasing his innings and getting him to improve each of his pitches at each level. The Pirates tend to work a little more on the changeup of West Virginia. 
um, or fastball command rather at West Virginia and the change of a Bradenton and Glassman kind of fit into the box with you know wanting to work on those things at those levels. He was in a position before the season where the Pirates were essentially saying, yeah, if he pitches well, he's going to move quicker. He's going to do two, maybe three levels in a year, three levels being you know, the major leagues. They were, they were open to that going into the season. Um, so the ankle injury was a real shame because he was pitching well enough that probably he would have done that, probably would have moved really quickly, um, if not for, for the ankle injury. Um, but he's now back into that form, and i, I got to think one or two more starts as dominant as, as what he's done his last two or three times out. just has to get him at least to Indianapolis and, um, you know, look, if, with his stuff, if he's spotting the fastball and, and has the secondary stuff to go with that on any kind of consistent basis, there's just there's not anything he needs to prove in the minor leagues. There'll be some adjustments to make in the majors, obviously, and how he employs that stuff, but it's going to be so far beyond the threshold of what's necessary to succeed in the majors. He's going to be he's going to be fine right from the start. There is one guy who doesn't have anything left to prove in the minor leagues, according to his major league organization, and that is top St. Louis Cardinals prospect Stephen Piscotty, who rounds out three strikes this week. He is getting the call. We're recording this on Tuesday. He is set to join the St. Louis Cardinals today for their game against the White Sox. Uh, Stanford University product, he was taken 36th overall in the supplemental first round in 2012, and it seems like... We've waited for a while to see him come to the major league level just because he reached higher levels so fast. In 2012, he's taken. In 2013, he's already in double A. And now over the last couple of years, he's gotten so much experience at the triple A level that he, I think, has learned how to be that high level prospect now without having really too many transitions throughout his minor league career. But, Jacob, I mean, what do you expect to see from Stephen Piscotty now that he's finally making that leap after basically two full years in triple A? Yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting to see where he kind of fits in. I mean, I think when the, the Cardinals acquired Jason Hayward, it kind of put Piscotty on a, a wait-and-see for another year. I think he's sort of the, the primary backup plan is what I would guess for Hayward if Hayward, I mean, obviously if there's an injury or something this year, but if they don't get Hayward re-signed at the end of the year. And I think he, he's going to provide something that's a little bit different, but the overall, he's going to provide it a different way, but the overall contribution is going to be very similar um, one of the things that really stands out about Piscotty, he was drafted in 2012 as a third baseman, and they pretty much immediately moved him to right field, um, where he's become one of the best defenders in, in the outfield, in, in a corner outfield spot in the minor leagues, and profiled him a couple times in the, the D-list series they do before um, every season. I really profiled him actually before the 2014 season. His manager with Palm Beach in 2013, Johnny Rodriguez, um, said it's not quite a Raul Mondesi-type Raul Mondesi type arm, but it's not very far from it. When he lets the ball go, it really travels. Um, so he's, he's a guy who's going to uh, get on some highlight reels with some throws from the outfield. His range out there is very good. He's probably not going to be able to handle center. He's not quite up to the same level as Jason Hayward, but he is the kind of guy that contributes a, a similar thing there. Uh, at the plate, he's a little bit different than Hayward. He's a right-handed hitter, makes a lot of contact, has a really, really polished approach. He's a guy who's going to drop plenty of walks as long as the opportunity is there. Um, the thing he'd been lacking coming into the season, and you can still kind of make this case at least for a, a corner outfield profile, um, is there's not a ton of power there. He had 15 home runs in 2013, split between two levels. Last year, he spent the whole year at AAA and only hit nine home runs. Um, then better this year, he's already up to 11 home runs in, in 87 games. His 475 slugging percentage is just about the, the best of his career. Um, so he's hitting for, for more power this year, um, and he sold out a little bit on the strikeouts for that. He made a little more contact last season. He's already actually struck out more this year than he did last year just by playing, it was it, like 50 more games last year. Um, but I think that's been a good, a, a good way to, to go about that for him, a good adjustment for him is, is selling out a little bit for that power. Um, I think probably to be a corner outfielder, even if you are an outstanding defender, you've got to be able to hit 
15 or so home runs a season to really justify an everyday role. I think Piscotty has that in him, but that might be closer to his ceiling than, than other guys. But I think uh, batting average is going to be pretty good. I think the on-base percentage is going to be great, and the defense is going to be really good. And he's a smart guy, heady base runner. Um, does a lot of things just well, kind of that good, you know, talk about the Cardinal way or just the guys who are, are heads-up ball players, uh, you know, they race for the makeup and everything. Um, so checks a lot of boxes. I don't know if, if he had more power. I guess maybe there'd be a little more upside here. I'm not sure if he's ever going to be an all-star MVP candidate, but could be one of those guys who rates out really well with the advanced metrics because of his defense and his ability to get on base and, and his general well-roundedness. The one thing that really fascinates me about the Cardinals is how adept they are at shifting guys around defensively no matter how they come into the organization if guys come in I mean like Piscotty who came in at one position uh moved to the outfield after being a third baseman in college then he goes to first base tries out a bunch of different areas to figure out the best fit for him so many organizations I think when they attempt that they're not successful or they're worried to attempt it in the first place and really mess with a guy's development. But the Cardinals, if you look at like the rash of best Cardinals prospects over the last five years or so, I would say almost a majority of them came into the organization at one position and have graduated from the minor league ranks at a different position from what they were in high school or in college. That's a really impressive thing for a major league organization to be able to do. And I think Piscotti's an interesting one because he doesn't necessarily provide the pop that you would expect at the positions that he's played, but he's diversified himself. So now if the Cardinals need to use him in multiple spots, they have that option for him, uh, especially if he's going to be coming off the bench, if that's going to be his role largely to get things started in his St. Louis career, uh, that's where the Cardinals are successful is they give those guys that diverse defensive profile to be able to do a whole lot of different things. So it'll be a fun one to keep an eye on as, as he graduates because we have kind of been waiting for this for, like I said, it feels like a while. And uh, Stephen Piscotty finally gets to make his major league debut in front of Cardinals fans uh, just three years after he was taken in the supplemental first round of the 2012 draft. That'll wrap up three strikes for this week. Coming up next, Jake and I are going to take a look at how the second half may look in major league baseball as it pertains to prospects, who we want to see in the major leagues, guys, who may be there, guys who we know probably won't be there. We're going to each take a handful of them and discuss who we want to see before the 2015 season is out at the big league level. That's coming up next. We're getting close to the time of year where you start wondering what the future looks like for a ton of organizations. The The second wild card position in the American and National Leagues has made it a little bit different from how it would have been a few years ago when you kind of know who the sellers are, you know who the buyers are, and you know what that means for each side of the line. With the, the second wild card spot, a lot more teams feel like they're involved in the playoff race, and maybe that makes for a less active trade market from year to year, but... There are going to be some teams come August who are not involved in the postseason race in Major League Baseball, and those teams are going to look toward the future, and that's what Jake and I are going to do. We're going to look into our crystal balls and pick out a few guys who we hope to see at the Major League level before this year is over. Now, a lot of this could be wishful thinking, some younger guys who probably aren't going to get a shot, but we still would love to see. Uh, so that's the task now is picking out a handful of guys who you could see at the big leagues at that level toward the end of the year and what we expect to see from them should they get that call. Jake, start us off. Who you got? Yeah, I'm going to go with a pretty obvious one, a guy who's getting a lot of push from his fans to, to get in the majors. It's Michael Conforto with the, the Mets. Uh, he's been at Double A Binghamton for 42 games now. He's in 325. He has five homers, 938 OPS. Uh, just a remarkably advanced approach. We talked a little bit about that in the first segment, how coming out of college, he's an Oregon State product, drafted 10th overall by the Mets in 2014. Came out of college with a really advanced approach. Um, he's a corner outfielder, not going to contribute a whole lot out there defensively, but is 
probably going to be the best hitter in the Mets outfield as soon as he gets to, to the majors. Like he's already probably the best outfield hitter in, in that entire organization. Might be you know, among the best hitters there in general, kind of willing to even throw that in there. Um, he doesn't have a, a ton of raw power. It's probably more closer to above average than, than being like a Joey Gallo, 80-grade, 90-grade power guy. But he taps into that power so much more often than, than a lot of other guys. He has really, really uh, kind of remarkable all-fields approach. He's, he's not actually too dissimilar from other guys in, in the system like Brandon Nemo and uh, uh, you know, Dom Smith or other guys that the Mets have drafted in the first round. All those guys, the thing they have in common is they're really, really good at using the whole field. What separates Conforto's bat from, from those guys is that he manages to do that while tapping into power and while swinging with authority in the right counts. Has a really good feel for that one to really let it loose, one to settle for just a, a line drive out to uh, out to left field. Um, just really, really polished. I think he's uh, certainly on the team that thinks he's ready to contribute and, and would transition relatively seamlessly for you know a prospect going into the major leagues. Obviously, you can't say that uh, with with full certainty that he's not going to face some kind of adjustment and struggle a little bit. But I think he's a better bet than most to transition well based on his skill set and a guy who. I mean, the Mets, they need offense, and, and it's going to cost them something to trade for a proven bat. I think they might be better served just letting Conforto go out there in one of the corners and, and stick him in the middle of the lineup and just see what you have there. I think that's uh, maybe a safer gamble than giving up something like a, a Gavin Cicchini or, or one of your other pitchers trying to, to get a bat for just the second half of the season. We should clarify real quick that we're talking about guys who have yet to make their major league debuts because if not for that stipulation, I think both of us would probably talk about Joey Gallo very early on in this conversation. But I'm going to stay on that same side of the infield, and uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about Corey Seager because Seager is – I think the the most anticipated next piece of the Dodgers puzzle to come up, especially with a team that acquired a veteran guy in Jimmy Rollins and what that'll mean for him going forward. But Seager has handled pretty much everything he's been asked to do. We saw him just tear up the Texas League for the first month of the season. And now, having made the jump to, to AAA, he's 21 years old. And even though I think... He's gone through some of those adjustment periods where, you know, for the month of May, he was fantastic. OPS 796, batted 300. June, he was just as good. He actually OPS a little bit higher at 799, batted 278. July, he somewhat swooned with a 255 average, but the OPS is still almost about the same at 788. He's handled that transition so remarkably well, and we haven't seen those big swings in the pendulum that you see a lot of times from guys like that especially younger guys who go to such advanced levels so often you'll see a guy jump to a new level just blow up for his first month or so and then especially in triple a pitchers get that figured out pretty quickly but we have not seen really long stretches at all from Corey Seager where he has struggled to adjust uh and he just does everything well I mean the stuff that you hear from scouts and from player development people and coaching staffs on Corey Seager I mean so many times Razor Shines actually said in an interview that he had run out of words to describe what Corey Seager does that's how good that kid is and he does everything well I think that's what makes him so interesting uh as a prospect this is not just that he's a a shortstop who hits well he's a good defensive player uh he's just an overall pretty complete package and you don't necessarily think of the Dodgers that way. We've talked about this from time to time. You think about the Dodgers now as this freewheeling, big-spending team, but they're developing a lot of these guys, and Corey Seager is definitely uh, at the forefront of that movement. Yeah, so I think with, with the first and second picks in this little draft we're doing, we knocked out the two obvious selections. Now we get to have a little fun, um, kind of change it up a little bit. So my next guy I want to talk about is Minnesota Twins right-handed pitcher Jose Barrios, who he only has three starts in AAA. He has a 5.60 ERA in those starts, but he's striking out well over a batter an inning. He's keeping the ball in the strike zone. He's hard to hit home runs off of. 
Um, he's only six foot, but he is possibly the most competitive guy of all the, the top prospects right now and you know in the upper minors. Um, just has a real personal drive and um, I think that demeanor was something that got away from him a little bit early in his career and is now something it's especially last year he worked on this being able to corral that energy and that competitive fire and really apply it in the right ways on the mound. Um, pairs that just with a, a deep repertoire and a repertoire with a whole bunch of above average pitches and a couple plus pitches mixed in there. Um, I, I think he's ready. I, I think he's maybe the least likely of all the guys we're going to talk about to actually get to the majors this year in any kind of meaningful way just because the Twins are trying to compete and I think they have a tendency to rely a little more on, on veteran guys maybe than some teams. Um, but I think Barrios is the guy that I think is, is you know, of all those guys at AAA, those pitchers who are waiting there, I think the most ready. And the one, frankly, that I want to see the most, because I think he's going to be a guy who has a, a repertoire that's deep enough that it's going to be interesting to see how it stacks up against major league hitters, how he kind of applies that. Um, and just generally kind of, I think he's tough enough and has the, the mentality that even if he goes up and struggles a little bit, it's not going to um, knock him down and, and, you know, ruin his confidence or something. I think he's a guy who's, who's ready for that kind of challenge. I think if the Twins were, um, you know, not still kind of hanging on in the playoff race, then maybe he'd be more likely to get up there and, and sort of uh, on a see-what-the-kid-can-do kind, of kind of basis. Uh, I'm not sure he's the kind of guy you call up in the middle of a pennant race hoping that he can, you know, turn things around, do a, a David Price or something, but definitely a guy that I, I would like to see up there. And he is one of the best Twitter showmen out there, hashtag uh -huh. push the game. So uh -huh. you got that going for you, too. I'm going to go with a pitcher as well with my second selection, uh, top Rockies prospect, John Gray. We've talked about a little bit. Uh, the, the situation with John Gray right now is an interesting one. A story came out this week that it looks like not only is he going to be a part of the Rockies rotation for the next week or so, they've said that they're going to go with a four-man rotation until about the end of the month. But even beyond that, he may not be up. Uh, this has turned into a, a strange situation here. Uh, I'm based in Denver, and this has been a very hot topic for really the last two months or so. I mean, ever since John Gray really started to take off, this has been a big topic because at the start of the season – He'd be the first person to tell you he was absolutely abysmal through the month of April for the AAA Albuquerque isotopes. But since then, he's been good in basically every single timeout. He's rocketed up uh, to the top of the PCL leaderboard in strikeouts, which is what you really want to see out of a guy like John Gray. And I think more than anything, he's learning how to have the mentality to defeat AAA lineups. What makes this so interesting right now is that the Rockies have said, Rockies general manager Jeff Breidich has said last year, he was the driving force behind the call-up of Eddie Butler to the major leagues. And Eddie Butler struggled toward the end of last season, the beginning of this year. Had some very good outings, had some very, very rough outings as well. He is now back in AAA. The Rockies don't want to make that same mistake with John Gray and promote him too soon. Now that being said, in his last 15 outings, Gray has an ERA of 3.32. He struck out 80 batters in 86 and two-thirds and he's only walked 29 there are still some benchmarks the Rockies are really looking for him to hit they want him to be more efficient with his pitches I think his most recent outing is probably the the most um, emblematic example of that he threw 64 pitches over his first three innings but he only threw 20 over his last two and he actually did so, this is over the weekend, in the presence of Rockies player development director Zach Wilson and actually Rockies owner Dick Monford, who were both in the ballpark in Albuquerque, to take in that start. John Gray has been terrific, really, ever since the start of the month of May, but the Rockies want him to be more efficient. They've also said they want to see more sharpness on his breaking stuff. Uh, I believe that he will get this call. Some of these guys that we're going to talk about today probably won't this year. I think that John Gray is, is on the docket. Uh, he did tell a reporter earlier this week that 
that he's trying not to pay attention to the rumors, but it is frustrating. He feels like he's ready for Major League Baseball. Uh, The Rockies right now, I think, are just kind of caught between the rock and the hard place of do we feel like he is 100% ready while weighing that against do we want to see him in the major leagues and really test out what he can do before the end of this season? So uh, he's my my next selection because he's one of the most exciting prospects in the minors, a fire-breathing type of guy who has devastating breaking stuff when it's working well, very good off-speed stuff. He commands his stuff very well, especially for a big-body type of pitcher. Um, John Gray is, I think, the training wheels have been off with him for a while now, and uh, once he makes it to the major leagues, he's going to be a, a very exciting prospect to watch. Yeah, yeah, definitely with you on, on all of that. Uh, for my last guy, we'll transition back into the infield. I want to talk about a guy who I know is a favorite of yours and has been a, a personal favorite of mine just since I did some interviews and stuff with people uh, over the offseason. That's Orlando Arcia with the Brewers. He's a shortstop who, uh, for the last few years, has been considered one of the better defensive shortstops in the minor leagues, has um, you know more than enough athleticism over there, a great arm but really stands out for his, his instincts and his consistency and just the, the overall polish that's been there from a very young age. Uh, the question with Arcee has kind of always been how much is he going to hit. I think he was regarded as mostly a, a slap-hitting guy without much power in the lower minors. Showed a little bit more last year in the Florida State League and um, still not a, a huge power threat, but is hitting the ball with a lot more authority this year with double-A blocks. He's hitting 309. He has five homers, 25 doubles, 14 stolen bases. The OPS is up over 800. Um, just has, I think we talked about this a little bit last week or, or at some point recently, there was a, a comp that we got from one of his coaches on sort of a, a Vlad Guerrero approach and, and doesn't have necessarily the power that Guerrero had, but is going to be able to swing at everything and get away with it, you know, a, a little bit of a Pablo Sandoval or something, um, except he's an excellent defensive shortstop, so he doesn't need to hit a whole lot to justify his position. Um, and I also know just from talking to Brewers people in the offseason, there were coaches who he's played for who thought that before even this season, he was ready to go to the major leagues and, and hold his own. And they understood, obviously, that's not something that's going to happen. But if there was an injury or something, they needed a shortstop just for four or five games. Arcia was the guy they were absolutely going to recommend to the staff to say, hey, you know, he's, he's ready, he's, he's competent, he's going to be able to hold his own, he has the confidence to do this, the awareness and everything. Uh, I think at this point, it's pretty much safe to say that the Eugene Segura experiment at shortstop is is not really working. Segura, every, he had that awesome first half in 2013. He had 325, had 11 home runs. Uh, he hasn't hit since. He got hurt in the second half, so he didn't play a whole lot in 2013, but he had 241, which is one home run then. Um, he's been a well, well, well below average hitter the last uh, two years since. He was really bad last year. He's been marginally better this year. Um, you know, Fangrass has him worth 0.3 wins above replacement over the last two years combined. So he's basically been a replacement level player. Arcia, I think, is the future of uh, the Brewers franchise. I think he's he's going to be the best of the shortstops they've developed over the last 10 or, or 15 years, and they developed some good ones. I think he's going to be better than Alcides Escobar. I think he might be better than J.J. Hardy. I think the, the ceiling here is maybe more than we all recognize coming into the season, and I think he's already really close to being able to produce at a, a really high level. Um, I think a guy that they should be blocking into that starting spot next spring and probably you want to see just make sure he's ready and get him that requisite experience in the majors this fall just to, to make sure he's there but I would expect to see him at least in September I, if it was me I'd probably push him even sooner I don't think he's his approach I don't think has a whole lot left to prove at double A I think he's he's really advanced and really ready 
He's another one of those guys who, when you listen to people in the organization and outside the organization talk about his talent, I think he has probably raised his stock as much as anybody, especially a top 100 prospect this year. I mean, he came in kind of toward the back half of those really highly touted guys in the MLB.com top 100, but what he's been able to do this season puts him in that conversation of the probably the the one-and-a-half tier maybe prospects. Um, he's going to be fun. He's a complete package as well, like a lot of these guys we've talked about. Um, I'm going to close mine out with a, a throwaway and i will fully admit that that's probably what it's going to be but uh this is complete wishful thinking if i could get a chance to see somebody in the major leagues before the end of the year i want to see julio urias in the major leagues it's not going to happen he's 18 years old but i i, I wouldn't be so sure about that i could see okay him early that was not not it's a long shot but i don't think it's impossible so far this year and and urias has had a kind of an interesting season in the way that his last two months have gone talk about that in a second but to start the year as an 18 year old in double a tulsa these are his numbers through seven starts a one and two record but a three even era 46 strikeouts against nine walks in 36 innings he's only given up three home runs opponents are batting 194 against him and he's 18 years old now urius at the end of of may had surgery uh, to remove a benign mass from his left eye, and that's knocked him out of action. Uh, this is something that he's dealt with his entire life. He actually had had some surgeries before to try to correct that issue. They never took. He gave it one of the most tremendous quotes I've ever heard uh, to the Los Angeles Times before the season when he said, God gave me a bad left eye but a good left arm. And the Dodgers in May presented that to him basically as something that they wanted to do as kind of a gift to Julio Urias. So he had surgery to, to correct the issue with his eye. And since then, he's only pitched in two games. They've both been at the rookie level, Arizona league level, but in his, so far his three innings there on July 10th and 16th, uh, two hits, five strikeouts, one walk has not allowed a run. And it seems like he is the, the same guy. They're not going to give him a ton of innings there when he's ready. He'll go back to Tulsa. I don't think he'll be in the big leagues. There's a chance they could throw him in there, especially toward the end of the season. The Dodgers need an extra bullpen arm. But I do think he'll get a test at Oklahoma City before the season is out, which means this is so selfish. I'm like, no, I want to see him in the big leagues at 18. He's probably going to be in the big leagues at 19. Like, that's any slouch. So, Julio Urias, he's the left-handed minor league Jose Fernandez. That's what it feels like. That's the excitement level the energy that he brings on the days when he's starting you get pumped to put on milb tv he's appointment television he's one of the guys you're going to want to pay to see when he gets to the big league level so even if it doesn't happen it's going to happen pretty soon and he is very very exciting prospect to keep an eye on yeah that's yeah of all the guys that's that's the 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 biggest wish on this list i think for both of us we're both throwing out the urias thing Mm -hmm. i hope Mm -hmm. gabe kapler and the brass in Los Angeles are tuned in. I'm sure yeah. they are. Who's not listening? listening? <laughs> for, for us. For us. Not even for Dodger fans. Just for us. Just selfishly for the two hosts of the show before the show podcast. We've been yeah. very kind to Dodgers prospects. We, we got Razor Shine to say all those nice things about Yeah, them. exactly. To so, be a Dodger. At what point are you going to do something for us, obviously? Which is your back. Unbelievable. We got promo stuff fast and furious in this week, episode number 17 of the show before the show. And Benjamin Hill will join us to discuss and dissect it all next. I think of all the times that we have caught up with our good pal Benjamin Hill of Ben's Biz blog, we have not yet had breaking promo news, but today we have breaking like big time breaking promo news to welcome benjamin hill back to the show ben take it away 
All right, yeah, breaking news. I feel like there should be, uh, you know, when you listen to a news radio station, there's uh, <laughs> Jumping that dramatic beat. Yeah, a little, uh, little music in the background and just ticking noises and just the, the energy of the newsroom. <laughs> I feel like we need that right now. Breaking news in the world of minor league promotions today. As the Fresno Grizzlies announced it on August 6th, they will change their name to the Fresno Tacos. And, um, yes, that's ridiculous. Yes, it's keeping with... Uh, you know, the ridiculous nature of minor league promos. Um, they are changing their name to the Fresno Tacos and, you know, wearing a hat, a, a, a hat that has a taco on it and, you know, a full tacos jersey. Um, but I do want to make it clear with this, you know, maybe unlike last year when the Grizzlies did the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle thing, you know, that's just kind of capital, capitalizing on, uh, you know, nostalgia for 20 years ago. This Fresno Tacos thing... Though it is something truly unique to Fresno, it is. I've been there. I've been to their taco trucks for the last five years. The Fresno Grizzlies have had the taco truck throwdown, where taco trucks from all over the Central Valley region come and sell their tacos, and fans vote on who's the best. It's one of the Grizzlies' biggest promotions, so this is all tied into that. August sixth is the fifth annual taco truck throwdown, so. You know, always looking to grow and capitalize on what's become one of their biggest promos and something that's truly regional. They went with the Fresno Tacos and, and did a great job. They have in-house graphic designers, and if you check out um, these hats, which they're selling as uh, new era fitteds to you know whoever wants one, and uh, these taco jerseys are, are really sharp. They're not as – I mean, you're still going to be wearing a shirt that says tacos on it, but <laughs> they're not nearly as embarrassing, I think, as they could be, and they really do tie into – a unique and proud element of Fresno and the California Central Valley. We're like yeah, through the looking glass. This. When you do a promo of a promo, then you're like through the looking glass of minor league baseball. Yeah, meta promo. You talk about this being ridiculous. I don't. Some people like bears. Some people like grizzly bears. It's some people's things. I don't know anybody who doesn't like tacos. I am totally. I got to say, the lead you wrote on this story is is probably the best piece of writing we've had on the site. I feel like the rest of us should all just quit <laughs> in reference to this being uh, a taco promotion following on the success of last year's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle promotion. The, the opening line is, the Fresno Grizzlies have gone half shell from half shell to the soft shell, which I, is, I just wanted to, to pat you on the back for that. And they did, uh, they also clarified on Twitter that it's a corn tortilla. Jesse Spector, the Sporting News, asked them today, is it flour or corn? And they did say it's corn. So we know it's soft shell and it's a corn tortilla, which is the hey, superior no. taco tortilla. Yeah, and that's the Fresno way of doing things. I mean, they're, they are legit in their tacos. And um, I had, I'm going to call out whoever edited the story. I actually said, um, I called this news tortilla awesome, but that was removed. Oh, no, it is. Oh, no, it's still there. It's still there. I was looking the wrong way. Because I just saw our good pal, uh, our former colleague Ash Marshall just called you out for that on Twitter. He said, you lost me with the tortilla awesome line. Right. If you get lost on that, then you never really had in the first place. He's British. They don't have tacos. Or, what, is, what does he know about tortillas? That's true. He still is probably learning what a Can't taco is. can dip that stuff in tea. I don't do that. Ben, let's let's talk about this though on kind of a grander scale because you sort of know how dedicated a team is to a promotional night if they do a hat with it because it's it's easier I think for teams to do the special jersey thing because you can get the jerseys a little bit cheaper OT Sports or whoever can run them off you can do them on kind of shorter notice but if you go the full distance of getting New Era to make up fitted on field hats you are a little bit further into the promotional stratosphere with that particular promo have you ever seen a team go 
this big into not just a, a promotion doing the tacos thing, but spinning that off of another promotion. I mean, it's, you know, kind of like I said, like we're in the matrix where Fresno has this promo, it's taco truck throwdown. And now they're doing a promo dedicated to that promo like this. Have you seen something like this before? No, no, I haven't. And that's why um, I do think it's important to kind of uh, acknowledge this promotion as, as one of the better ones, because it's not just, a front office brainstorming saying, ah, what was something we had nostalgia for that's coming up on an anniversary that's 25 years old, that's 30 years old, and we can capitalize on? You know, this is them saying, we created something that's so popular that now we're going to wear theme jerseys based on something we created. I mean, they did not invent the taco, but they have a very successful taco truck throwdown. And to, to do that, and as you said, create the hat, you almost never see um, other elements to these theme nights when the player, in terms of what the players wear, except the jerseys, and to have the hat as well, and to have that for sale to the fan, and not just obtainable via, you know, a post-game auction, is, is really showing the commitment to this. And I imagine, you know, the Lehigh Valley bacon hats, um, you know, the Montgomery biscuits are a perennial big seller. I think these taco hats uh, will probably catch on, not just among Grizzlies fans, but that subset of uh, sports fans that go nuts for the unique fitted caps. So. The Grizzlies are smart, and I know uh, they're probably expecting some nice uh, proceeds from this. I'm one of those people, by the way. I have like 90 fitted hats. <laughs> I am absolutely one of those people. Anyway. Well, it seems like it seems like putting food on your hat is a great way to stretch outside even the baseball fan population and get to the people who just like wearing hats, which is, is people who don't just play baseball. I think I've seen some, some bacon hats on people who don't maybe not be baseball fans. It seems like good good branding. Expecting more of that. Yeah, because who doesn't like food? Um, I yeah. talked to a team once that what we're gonna do a, a barbecue hat, but then it turned out they didn't want a brisket. <laughs> well, the brisket just didn't look good. Yeah, just harder, like... harder to translate. Just meat. <laughs> Benjamin Hill, we're talking uh, all kinds of weird promo stuff, but we're also going to cover, you've been on like 19 different road trips this season, and you're still churning out some content from uh, your past one, which was through the Virginias, and some really cool stories that came out of that. I mean, we talked about the story of the, the official schedule creator uh, in the International League, but there's been some really neat fan-dedicated stories that have come out of that trip as well. Potomac has a really cool one, and Potomac, if you've ever been to G. Richard Fitzner Stadium in Potomac, it is kind of like a Mad Max baseball facility. It's not the the, the frilzy 21st century uh, baseball park that you've become accustomed to in minor league baseball. It's very bare bones. It's metal bleachers. It's kind of set in suburbia. It's not that front end new age uh, ballpark, but that doesn't mean that they don't have the community ties. And this is a really cool story. Yeah, that's something I really try to highlight on these trips. Uh, you know, Fitzner Stadium, the Fitz. Um, is it an appropriate ballpark for a team that plays in the greater D.C. area? Like, no. It's, it's more on the uh, you know, community softball field end of the equation. It's obviously better than that. But I like visiting places like that, and I like finding the stories within them because just because a place has a bad stadium or an underwhelming stadium, you know, a lot of people who just only know the situation superficially are just like, ah, why would I go there? And to me, it's, of course you'd go there, because there's fans everywhere. There's good stories everywhere. There's a unique culture everywhere. Uh, so when I was there, I visited Ken's Place, an area down the right field line that is dedicated to a fan named Ken Roskowski, uh, who died about eight years ago suddenly. He was only in his mid-40s. And Ken's Place is just an attempt by his fellow fans. Um, you know, Ken was at almost every Potomac Nationals game. And it's just an attempt by his fans, uh, you know, largely just kind of group of guys who he would, you know, 
trash talk with, hang out with, talk baseball with, have beers with. They still gather every game at Ken's place. And, uh, you know, as I point out in the story, it did seem like a local bar, you know, where everybody kind of knows each other. They tell the same old stories. They have a, a lot of great banter and kind of funny dialogue. And it's great to come to a stadium and kind of be welcomed into that world, however briefly, and get a sense of what, what the culture is. And then when you leave that place, you can say, I enjoyed that. It's not just some old dump of a stadium. It has character, and, and why not visit? Yeah, speaking of, uh, of culture and, and whatnot, I know you're heading back on the road on Monday, and you were starting in New Orleans, which sounds like a cool place to fly into, maybe not so much in late July, early August. But tell us a little bit about what, uh, what the next trip for you entails. Yeah, as I finish all my uh, Virginia trip content this week, hopefully, knock on wood, I will be leaving on Monday for New Orleans, Nolens. And uh, that's where my next trip will start, uh, visiting the Zephyrs. And a uh, big highlight of that trip, I'm also going to see uh, the Biloxi Shuckers. And I hadn't realized this when I made the itinerary. I'm actually going to be in Biloxi on the 10th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina and in New Orleans just you know the day before. Um, so I'm not sure if that will come into play, but that's kind of a little unsettling to think uh, how badly that region was hit. And also inspiring to think how much has changed since then. It's also crazy to think that it's been 10 years already yeah, since then. Uh, 10 years, that's a whole nother element. Um, but visiting Biloxi Shuckers, you know, who got a late start in opening their ballpark because the construction was delayed, but they're in a full swing right now. So really interested to see what's going on with them. Buck Rogers used to be the Huntsville Stars GM, relocated with the club. And uh, he's, when I think of GMs in minor league baseball that just have a ton of personality, he's one of them. So he's always good for quotes and a story and just to kind of uh, push the atmosphere a little weirder, zanier, high energy than you thought it might go. So really interesting to seeing what he's doing in Biloxi. And the trip ends, um, not to give short trip to the other teams I'm visiting, but it ends in Nashville, you know, where the Sounds have a new park. So um, this trip, I'm not really looking forward to the heat, the deep south in late July into August, but uh, I think some really unique destinations and uh, really looking forward to... Uh, seeing what I see, and uh, hopefully a lot of good material comes out. Uh, when you go to New Orleans, are you doing something on Austin Nola, playing for Nola? Is that on your, your list? You know, it hadn't been, but... Uh, so I feel like so that yeah. happened. I know they got a little attention just when it happened, but I haven't seen anything. I feel like we need to... That's see, right here's the problem with that, though, is the jerseys that they have that say Nola on the front don't have names on the back. That's the problem. Really? So, Ben, you got to oh. go and say, like, for one night, can't you just sew everybody's names onto the jerseys? Or at least his, at least put Nola's name on the Nola jersey. Yeah, that's a good angle. That's why I need to talk to more people before I leave. <laughs> I know a lot of stuff about my world, but sometimes I can lose it a little bit when it comes to the rosters and uh, those connections. So keep talking to me, everybody. Give me your ideas. Shoot your ideas to Ben on Twitter. He is at Ben's Biz. You can also check out the blog, bensbiz.mlblogs.com. There's a lot of really good stuff from uh, the Virginia's trip up there and soon to be a lot of good stuff from this. Uh... Jake, what did you call it? The Delta drive through The Delta Drive? Uh, yeah, the Delta, the Delta Drive, I guess. Yeah, cool. why not? Like that it. sounds like a country band, but not like a terrible one. Not like a, you know, some of them are just, oof. Delta Drive sounds like one that I might go, all right, maybe I'd listen to that. I don't know. <laughs> I'm with you on that. <laughs> That's coming up next. That's the next stage for our good pal Ben Hill. And Ben, enjoy, man. Have some. I'm not big into Cajun food, but there will be a lot of barbecue around. So enjoy that if you if you want a brisket. Nailed it. <laughs> good callback, man. I appreciate it. <laughs> Wrapping up 
the 17th edition of Minor League Baseball is the show before the show podcast. Our big thanks to Ben Hill for joining us from the offices today. He's headed out on the road again on Monday, so be sure to follow Ben on Twitter at Ben's Biz. Jake's on Twitter as well. He's at Jake underscore Signer, and I am at Tyler Mon, and you can follow MILB at MILB. And speaking of MILB, we got some good stuff coming up on Mild TV this week. Jake, take it away. Yeah, we're hoping to have this out uh, by Thursday morning. And if that's the case, I can tell you that Henry Owens is going to be thrown for Pawtucket at noon on Thursday. Uh, he's been much better of late, had some command problems early in the season, but seems to be coming into his own, put together a couple good starts. And we are crossing our fingers. We're going to have Julio Urias back in, in AA at some point in the near future. He's made two starts now in the Arizona League. Might get one more. Maybe we'll, we'll get bumped up to Tulsa pretty soon, but... Expecting him to be back on our, our mill TV cameras pretty soon. Uh, beyond that, for Dodgers fans, I'm writing a thing on Alex Verdugo right now, who is breaking out in the Midwest League. Had a rough first two months and has been really, really good in like 350 over the last two months with some power. So you can read about how he's doing that. And I think that's uh, pretty much everything that I have to plug at this point. You can find all of that pertinent information at MILB.TV. And until next week, where I'm sure we will have uh, heat stroke related things to discuss with Benjamin Hill. Uh, hopefully not for him, but I cannot imagine going to the Deep South in July. Like, I would love to go visit New Orleans and all those places, but man, late July, I feel like. I, I went there in September two years ago as, like, my you know, season is over. This is, I'm going to take my little vacation. Yeah. It, it was awful. <laughs> it, was, it was great. I had a great trip, but it was so hot. Just bring Ben a bag of ice packs to the office tomorrow. Take these with you. We don't need you getting overheated, Ben. Yeah, yeah, I can't. That's being outside at a ballpark in that heat. Or the guys have to play in that heat. Oh. Oh, sounds like fun. All kinds of fun. Better him than us. Enjoy it, Ben. And uh, enjoyed episode number 17 of the show. We'll talk to you guys next week. Yeah.